So every day, there are more than eight and a half billion searches on Google. And many of those searches, people are asking perfectly good and profound questions. But some of those searches are people just looking for directions to Chipotle. More than half of those searches are your mom trying to find Facebook. In the last year, people began searching for something that for, for thousands of years seemingly had a simple, if not straightforward, answer. People began asking questions all connected to one idea, one idea that suddenly seemed very complicated, if not controversial. And that notion, that idea, is gender. People started Googling all kinds of questions, questions like these. What is a man, anyway? What is a woman, anyway? What are my pronouns? What's trans? Can boys play girls sports? Is that a good thing? What's the difference between biological sex and gender? As part of the Christian faith, we are called to apply that faith to the cultural questions of our day and age. And that's what we attempt to do in this series. And I had intended to answer this question this morning. The question was this, how do we follow Jesus in a world of gender confusion? That was my plan. And then I changed my plan. And I completely rewrote the talk for this morning. Because, because I was convicted by this truth, I know that there are people who are here with us today, who are watching online, who are deeply struggling with the question of who am I? There are people who are wrestling deeply with, with their identity. There are those who have never really felt comfortable in all the cultural expressions and expectations of what it means to be a man or a woman or what they've heard the Bible says about those things. There are people for whom these questions about gender are not just an idea or an issue, but they are a very urgent reality. And I felt convicted not to talk about you, but to talk to you. And to talk to you directly with, with love and compassion and to offer some encouragement and some direction and some comfort from God's word. And so if you are struggling with, with who you are and with all these, these current questions surrounding gender and identity and biology, if, if you just never felt comfortable in the skin that God gave you, then, then this is for you, okay? And the first thing that, that my heart is heavy for you to know is this, that you are good. You are good. Now, that, that doesn't mean you are without sin, doesn't mean that, that there's not uh, dysfunction and confusion in you and flowing through you just like there is for me. That doesn't mean you're any less in need of a savior named Jesus Christ or any less in need of mercy and grace that flows from his cross. What I mean is this, that, that the design of you and, and me, of humanity, is good. This, this notion that we are a soul, we are a heart, we are a mind and a body all together as one. This design that you carry with you, you are good. 
And we know that that is good because of what the scriptures tell us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 tells us that you and I, mankind, humanity, is made in the image of God. You've heard these words before and all likelihood I'll read them again. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's, there's like a, a complementary aspect of humanity that together reflects the image of God, apparently, because the next line is this, male and female, he created them. You are made in the image of God. You, the whole you. Heart and mind and body. The whole you is a reflection of the glory and the goodness of God. There are other parts of you that reflect God's glory, your, your capacity to create, your capacity to love, your ability to have compassion, any part of you that hungers or thirsts for righteousness and goodness and truth, all of that is part of you bearing the image of God, but so is your maleness, so is your femaleness, so is your flesh and your blood. All of it together reflects the glory of God. You are good. In that sense, you, me, humanity is sacred because we reflect the divine in a way that nothing else in all of creation does. And what should you do with something that's sacred? Should you despise it? Should you try aggressively to, to change it? Or should you, knowing that, that this is part of who you are, that all of you is made in the image of God, should you try over the course of a lifetime to come to terms with what it means to be you and to cherish and to celebrate and to steward every part of you, not just your heart and your mind and your emotions, but also your flesh and your blood and the biology that God has given you. All of it is who you are and who you are as a human made in the image of God. Though you may be sinful and broken and in need of a savior, the design that God has given you is good. Amen. The other thing that you need to know is this, and this might sound a little confusing, but hopefully I'll make sense of it. You are one. We said that you're made in the image of God, so am I. And we like to talk about God in, in, in the Christian faith as being three persons, yet one God. We talk about the mystery of the Holy Trinity, that God is three parts, three persons, yet one. Each part, each person, fully and completely God. They are distinct, yet not pulled apart. It is all part of this, this indivisible oneness that is the reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three parts, three persons, but how many gods? One God. And in some sense, because you're made in the image of God, the same is kind of true for you and for me. Like, like you have an emotional self, the things you feel and think, right? You have a social self, the you that is presented to the rest of the world and then engages with the world. And you also have a physical self. And all of these things matter, your internal life, your external expression, and your flesh and blood body. All of these things matter. Each one of these things is equally you. Each one of these things is of importance. You take one of those things away, we don't have what? We don't have you because all of it is part of a whole. You are one. They're all connected. You can't divorce them from one another. You know, Jesus believed this. Jesus was teaching about marriage one time. And in talking about marriage, he, he all of a sudden jumped to Genesis 
And he quotes the, the words of Noah in the book of Genesis, talking about how, how mankind is created. Look at this, Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 24, I believe. Jesus says, have you not read that he, it's God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? So he's talking about the biological reality of humanity. And said, therefore, because there's male and female, they, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus makes an argument about the ethics of marriage by pointing to the biology of men and women. Now, now why is that important? That, that's important because Jesus clearly sees uh, a, an indivisible connection, a, an organic union between how we're wired in our flesh and blood and how we should then live in the world or express out that biology in some way, shape, or form. It, it's a mysterious connection, but these two things are bound together. They're connected in some mysterious way. We can't divorce them from each other. Now, you and I live in a world where, where a handful of decades ago, a significant shift started to emerge. Up until about the late 1960s, words like sex and gender were used synonymously and interchangeably to talk about the biolo biological reality of being a male or female and then how that's played out in everyday life. But in the late 1960s, a whole lot of things occurred, and one of them, as a result of all these things happening, was that we made a very sharp distinction between biological sex and gender. We took these two things that are mysteriously bound together, and we, we pulled them apart. And we said, there's, there's who you are physically, but then over here, there is, there is how you feel about yourself, and there's how you express yourself to the world. And these two things can be very, very different. And it's okay if they're very, very different. And they can be even diametrically opposed to each other. And not only that, but this one, this one, the idea of gender, is, is kind of a playground for where you can discover who you are and define who you are. And this one is not only disconnected from this one, but this one actually is more important than this one. So if you feel a weight of anxiety and burden by this disconnect between your biology and your emotional reality and how you want to present yourself in public, which of these two should you change? You should change this one and make it normed by this one. And that is all derived from this idea that these two things are disconnected, that they are not inherently connected to each other. And that is a big reason why there is so much anxiety and angst on the subject of gender and who we are and how to make sense of it all. You are not two opposing things. You are one. And part of the reason why this is important is because we live in a day and age where, where sometimes those those who wrestle with their identity, wrestle with what, what gender means, they are encouraged to have a low view of the body. They are encouraged to have a view of the body that says it's changeable and it's malleable. It is not as important. You can, you can hate the body, in a sense, in order to serve the emotions and the heart and the expression. And people within the Christian faith and outside of the Christian faith strongly believe that this kind of false dichotomy is not only unhelpful, but it is harmful. Because that gap between, between sex and gender, between biology and emotional expression and social expression, that gap creates angst and worry 
and fear, and people will go to great lengths, even self-destructive lengths, to try and remedy it. You are not two parts. You are a whole. Because remember, what God has made is good. You are good, and you are one. The other thing I, I need you to know is that you can have peace. A lot of the peace that you lack comes from the fact that we live in a day and age where we are told that there is no truth to tie ourselves to and that everything's relative and that you are, you are somehow bad or wrong or judgmental if you're just seeking clarity about what things mean and if there's any objective standard by which we can understand ourselves. I'm, I'm the proud father of an incredible teenage daughter. But one of the things that comes with being the father of a teenage daughter is, is understanding that you don't know anything. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 look, I, I'm okay with it. I'm just learning it from her. I know nothing. I know nothing of how the world works. Like, I try to offer her insight of, like, maybe what she should do for college or how she should navigate that, and I'm told, Dad, that's not how the world works anymore. Got it. Cool. Duly noted. Or I'll tell her, like, you know, maybe you and your friends could go and do this this weekend. That sounds like fun. And she just looks at me with a blank stare and says, no. Or I'll try to connect with her and use some of her language. I'll throw out words like cap and bet. And then she'll say to me, why are you choosing violence? What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. I, I'm coming to terms with the reality that as a as a middle-aged dad, I do not know anything about how the world works. I bring that up to make this point. You and I all live in a day and age where we're all meant to feel like middle-aged dads. Nobody knows anything anymore. Nobody knows anything anymore. And if you think you know something, you're wrong and you're bad. And, and, and living in a world where nobody gets to know anything for sure is part of what's increasing your angst and anxiety. Now, I'm biased in this, but my bias just happens to be right, humbly said. <laughs> but, like, I think this is part of what happens when, when a culture disconnects itself from the reality of God. Like, whether you're a Christian or not, like, if you disconnect yourself as a culture from the reality of God, because God, you, 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 can't, you can't have objective truth and and ethics and morality without some notion of some larger being outside of us that is guiding and directing all things that sets the foundation for truth and morality and ethics. So once you take the notion of God in general out of the picture, mankind is kind of unmoored from any objective standard over itself, and we are forced to all individually go within ourselves to determine what's true, what's right, what's reality. And everything then, everything becomes subjective. And in a world where everything is subjective, chaos reigns and anxiety goes through the roof. Especially questions about who am I? What should I do? Do I matter? Am I loved? Go through the roof. This is why you hear conversations like this. Someone will say to you, well, well I'm not a professor of biology, so I can't say with any certainty what it means to be a man or a woman. You can't know. Or somebody else's personal experience trumps what used to be held as some objective truth because personal experience now is objective truth. And so if someone's personal experience contradicts what, what you know to be true or what, what the world's always taught to be true, 
You set it to the side and you elevate someone else's personal experience. You can't know that to be true. Certainly maybe you can't state it to be true as forcefully as you used to. And, and I, I choose to believe that there's a lot of good intention behind all of that, but ultimately I believe that that, that, that is leading to a whole lot of the chaos around language and the angst and uncertainty in the hearts of so many, maybe even particularly you. But I take comfort in truths like this from the Christian scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Wherever you see confusion reign, you see humans causing a problem. When, when confusion reigns and rules, it's not God's fault, it's ours. Because the good news is that God has created a world in which, which truth can be found. And, and in his kingdom, it's okay to seek clarity and ask questions and to pursue that truth. Because what we know is that, is that when you discover certain truths, truths that are embedded into how this world was made, but also truths that come to us from God's word, that when you discover truths and truths can be found, it creates peace. And you can have peace. You do not have to buy the lie that everything is relative or that we are subjected to ignorance regarding certain foundational things in this world. Leaving you to yourself to just make sense of it in your own way. Oh, that is a burden. That is such a burden. There is truth. Clarity can be found. That's the world that God has made and you can have peace that flows from that. So seek some truth. It can be found. It can. The other thing, if you're wrestling with identity and gender and all of these things, the other thing I need you to know, and my heart is really heavy for this one, you need to know that Jesus is the ideal and the goal. I imagine that part of what you're wrestling with is the fact that, is the fact that in some way, shape, or form, you don't feel like you meet whatever the cultural expectation is of what it means to be a boy or a girl. You don't feel like you meet that and so you somehow feel like an other or an outsider or there's this sense of conflict within you that you just, can't, you just can't resolve. Yet remember, you were made in the image of God. You carry the, the genetic profile from your mom or your dad, but you were not primarily made in the image of your mom. You were not made in the image of your dad. Primarily, fundamentally, you were made in the image of God. And what we're told about Jesus is that Jesus is the greatest image bearer of God that has ever been or ever will be. Jesus is God in flesh, but Jesus did have flesh, and so he shows us what it means to live the fullness of humanity. The human ideal, whether you're a man or a woman, is Christ. Look at these words from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the ideal human. Your goal as a man or a woman, your goal is not to meet a cultural expectation. Your goal as a man or a woman is to pursue Christ in your femininity, to pursue Christ in your masculinity. Look at the wholeness of who God made, not only what you think and you feel, but also the flesh and blood that he's given you and ask and wrestle with this question, what does it mean to cherish and to imitate Jesus in this? 
That's what it means to live faithfully. That's what it means. Because look, so much of what we put labels on as masculine or feminine are culturally derived, and they are flexible and they change. They change quite a bit. Just a hundred years ago, the standard color for boys was pink. And the standard color for girls was blue. There's a famous article from Ladies Home Journal, 1918, which states it as a plain fact. As we all know, newborn babies should be wrapped in pink, and your girl should be dressed in blue. And everybody, when they went home from a hospital, wore a frilly white dress. These things change. Now, is it wrong to call a man a woman according to the basics of biology, sociology, and also theology. We would say yes, but what else is wrong is to baptize certain cultural stereotypes and say that they are of God. You can be a faithful man made in the image of God and not own a truck. (laughs) Not have a dove lease. Not give two toots about the rodeo not be successful in oil and gas. You can be successful, faithful, as a female made in the image of God and not care at all about looking cute, not have any desire to be a homemaker, not have any passion at all for true life crime drama podcasts. (laughs) Because the goal is not any of those things. The goal is Jesus. And by the way, talking about Jesus, Jesus Jesus lived in a day and age where he wore a tunic, which looks a lot like a dress. Jesus didn't have a job, and his bills were paid by women. And we're not out here questioning his masculinity, are we? Because what made him faithful as a man was something bigger than the car he didn't own and the job he didn't have. It was his willingness to embrace the responsibility to take on his shoulders the need to forgive the sins of the world and to sacrifice himself. That's what faithfulness looks like as a man or a woman. Jesus is the ideal and the goal. And we need to create a space in the church of all places for for people to say, look, I don't don't fit the stereotype of, of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, but I'm coming to terms with the fact that that's who God made me to be And there's a way for me to still be faithfully that even if I don't fit anybody else's expectation because the goal is Jesus Christ. He's the goal. So there is space for you here because the the goal is Jesus. The next thing that you need to know, and and you're you're gonna roll your eyes at this because you're like, I knew he was gonna say that. But I think part of the problem that you're having is that what I'm about to say you don't believe. You are loved. You are lovely. You are lovable. All of those things are true. That is your identity. Now, I use that word identity on on purpose because you and I live in a day and age, and I think this is a big part of why you're feeling some of this angst and frustration and, and, and confusion. We live in a day and age where we are told that your identity is something that you have to create, that it's something that you have to forge on your own, that you have to, you have to manufacture. And my goodness, I, I hope you realize that, that, that that's not true. And that is, 
That is a burdensome, soul-killing lie that, that you don't have an identity and with identity any worth apart from your own work. You do not have to make who you are. Your identity is given to you. It is given to you by God. And then your task is to discover it and celebrate it and come to terms with it and try to seek faithfulness within it. Your identity is given to you by God by, by giving you the flesh and blood that he's given to you. Your identity is given to you by God by giving you a family history, by giving you a culture and a community that you come from, and it's also given to you in the work of Jesus Christ applied to you. And in Jesus Christ, with, with his hope in your hearts and, and with with the water of baptism on your forehead, the identity that you are given is that you are beloved and that you are brand new, that though you sin and you struggle, though death reigns in this world and it's attacking your body, you are not owned by those things. You are defined by the work that's been done for you and given to you in Jesus Christ. That that's the truth of who you are. And by because of what Jesus has done, you are loved. And I know that when you look in the mirror, you don't feel lovely. I know that when you look at your body, you don't feel like you love it. You don't even feel lovable like anyone could love you. But it's a good thing that your heart and your mind are not king because your heart and your mind are wrong. The king of the world has claimed you and he loves you. And you are loved. You don't have to define your own identity. And what the rest of us need to do is we need to, we need to, we need to as a community of believers, we need to choose love and not outrage. We live in a culture where a lot of Christians are outraged at things that are happening. They're outraged at, at all the, the questions surrounding gender and all the stuff that's changing in this world. But, but as Christians, we are, not, we are not to be primarily known for our outrage over things. We are called to, to choose outrageous love or the, over the outrage of our day. That's what we're called to choose. Now, that being said, do, does that mean that we, we agree with what some would call radical gender ideology? No. Look, Jesus was against a whole lot of stuff. It's clear from his teaching that he was against a lot of things. He was against divorce. He was against hypocrisy. He was against greed. He was against prostitution. He was against adultery. These things are, are not a question at all. Yet what was Jesus known for? Despite being against all of these things, what was his reputation? The guy who's against a whole lot of stuff? No, what was his reputation? His reputation is that he was a friend of sinners. He was against all these things, but he had all these people who were struggling with him over for dinner. That was his reputation. And I know you are here today and you're struggling with this, but there's a giant hole in this church where your friends and others who are struggling with you need to be. Because that's the church that Jesus builds. When the church decides to do this, Ephesians chapter 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, up, up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You can hold to what's true and you can be known for love. That's the tension that the church is called to live in and you need to know that you are loved. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, why, why? Of all the people in the room, why, why is Pastor Matt talking to me today? Why is he talking to me today? 
Well, there's a couple of reasons. I, I felt deeply convicted to, to speak to you today because you matter. You matter. And also, I, I, I felt compelled to talk about this today, not only because you matter, but because something's happening in our world. Something significant is going on, and we don't really know why. But did you know that in the last, in the last 10 years, the, the number of, of, of girls under the age of 25 who say that they, they are confused about their, their gender identity in some capacity has risen by 5,000%. And among boys under the age of 25, 2,000%. Something is happening. That's why. But, but we also talk about it because, but because God is ready for it. And he is ready for you. He is ready to tell you who you are in a world that tells you, in a heart and mind that tells you there are no answers other than what you can forge with your own two hands. And he's ready to tell you that what he has made is good. He's ready to tell you that you don't have to live this disconnected reality, that there is wholeness found in him, that you are one. And, and he's ready to tell you that the truth can be found and clarity can be sought and that that is of God and it's good to want those things. You don't have to float through this existence. He's ready to tell you that what it means to be faithful is to just pursue Jesus. Learn to not despise what God has given you. And in that, learn to glorify God through a pursuit of Jesus Christ with those things. And above all, he's ready to tell you that you are beloved today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. If you, if you want to, if you want to talk about some of these things more um, or discover a little more, I encourage you to to take a look at a book that was written by uh, a fantastic New Testament scholar with a with a bit of a silly name. His name is Dr. Preston Sprinkle. It's true. Uh, but he wrote a fantastic book about all of this called Embodied that goes into greater detail than I could ever do or even attempt on a Sunday morning. If you scan the QR code, it'll take you to an interview that I did with Dr. Dr. Preston um, just about six months ago where we talk about gender and sexuality and all of these things through the lens of the Christian faith over the course of about an hour. Uh, so I would encourage you to check that out. It might be very helpful. I ask you to stand as we close out this morning. We're going to take whatever whatever anxieties, whatever issues, whatever needs or concerns that are left in your heart and your mind, and we're going to lift them up to the Father in prayer. And we're going to let the last word that we speak today to be a word of, uh, of prayer to the Father, knowing that he answers us and he hears us. I invite you to pray with me the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
Amen.